UX Podcast Episode 75. UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm Pat Expo. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And uh, today we're sitting at Espresso House, which I would guess is uh, what Starbucks is to the US. This is what uh, Espresso House is to Stockholm, uh, spread around the city. And we're sitting down with none other than Dave Gray. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Nice to have you in Stockholm. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And nice to see you all with microphones held up against <laughs> our beards. <laughs> yeah. yeah we've, we've, we've dished out the instructions on how you, how you need to hold them. Uh, and, but it's two years. Um, it's good to have you back again on the podcast. Yes, um, thank you. You joined us um, exactly two years ago, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, episode 15. Anyone oh, you checked that. Yeah, yeah. I did wow. check that. 15. Yeah, episode 15. Early and, bird. Um, that was when we were at um, UXLX um, 2011, right. 2012. 2012. Gamestorming yeah. in Lisbon. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and I just remembered I didn't attend your workshop because okay. I attended James McAnoopa's workshop last yeah, year. Yes, okay. Because I thought, yeah, I read the book. What could they teach me? <laughs> <laughs> sort of like that. Yeah. And then I babbled about it <laughs> <Yeah>. constantly <laughs> for the entire week. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I made you think that yeah. you actually were there. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. So, for those who don't know, Dave is the author of Game Storming, uh, which I've talked about a lot, I think, and I use a lot of the tools in that book uh, in my work as well. And we've mentioned it a fair few times on the podcast. Mm, the I think so. regular, regular listeners will mm. probably be sick of hearing Dave's <laughs> name. <laughs> so. But you've been really busy since then as well. Uh, I have. Yeah. I have. So, one more book, uh, new projects. Tell us a little more about that. Uh, okay, well, I've uh, since I finished GameStorming, I wrote a, a second book, which is out now, called The Connected Company. That mm-hmm. was an O'Reilly book. Uh, and that was a book that was really about uh, how uh, certain some companies are rethinking how the organization is structured. Uh, in, in the same way, I think, that Henry Ford sort of, and, and peers in the automotive industry especially, sort of, rethought the modern organization for the industrial age. Mm. There are companies now that are doing that for a more connected, more uh, creative, knowledge-oriented wor- world. Mm. Um, Amazon comes to mind as probably the, the really, I, the Ford of the modern uh, era. Mm. So, um, so that book, that, that, that was what that book was about. And, uh, it was really kind of what is Amazon doing, what is Google doing that's different than uh, what General Motors is doing, for mm-hmm. example, in terms of how they run a company. So that was pretty, for me, that was a very interesting project. I learned a lot while I did it. And as I started going around talking to people about the connected company, um, they started asking me how they could tr- do this. How you know, we're, we're, we're a divided company. Okay. We want to be mm. become more connected. We're mm. siloed mm. and all this. Mm. And um, I thought, okay, well, I guess I got to write a book about that because <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that question. <laughs> yeah. All I have, I basically had it a kind of, it was sort of like an anatomy book. It's sort of like, this is what a connected company is. Mm. And almost all of them uh, have, were born and grew up that way. Very few of them actually changed from an 
old school industrial style company to a more connected company. Right. So the question of how to do that uh, has led to the next book project, which I'm doing for Rosenfeld Media called Principles of Agility. Okay. Yeah. And so that book is really trying to understand. I'm talking to people all over. Uh, I'm talking to people who are doing agile software development, but I'm also talking to people uh, who are doing humanitarian aid in, uh, in uh, uh, the third world, uh, people who are doing, uh, you know, actually in the military, uh, people who are fighting, you know, wars and, 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 uh, and mountain climbers and really trying to learn, okay, when you are in a complex environment like we have today in a lot of ways, a lot of unknowns, rapid change, mm. how do you maintain, you know, purposeful action? How do you keep a direction? How do you keep moving in the direction that you want to move? And there's a lot of really great uh, principles in agile software development for, you know, kind of, you know, beginning before you know exactly what you're doing and iterating and constantly keeping in, in close contact with the uh, the environment. And that's, uh, I've learned a hell of a lot. Um, I've, I've probably conducted about 50 hours of interviews and uh, with people who are just doing this stuff. Mm. And it's been fascinating what I've learned. And um, I haven't actually figured out what all the principles are yet. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm still in the wallowing stage, but it's uh, okay. Uh, are you, are you um, so you, you're looking at this from from the individual viewpoint, or kind of broad? Uh, well, the way I think, the way I'm thinking of, I, I like principles. Um, you may you may be familiar with Edward Tufte and some of his books, um, mm -hmm. the uh, envisioning information, the visual display of quantitative information. In my world of information design, which is where I grew up, uh, he's he's considered one of the luminaries. And one of the things that I uh, have always liked about his work is the way that he teaches. He doesn't uh, offer – I mean, there's a lot of um, models out there, mm -hmm. right? You, you can – you know, people can offer you a model, and a model has often great explanatory power, right? Yeah, there's right. the elements of user experience. Um, there's uh, the double diamond. Mm. You know, and these things are, are models. And uh, I think that a model – uh, but one concept can be modeled in so many different ways that I think sometimes a model can be a trap mm. because you now you try, once you have a model in your mind, now you try and fit everything into the model, yeah, and you think yeah. it's wrong if it doesn't fit, right? And yeah. it's or people can say it's tell you it's wrong yeah. even when you it's not wrong. Oh, you you get a lot. Yeah. I think you get a lot then the whole uh, with lean. And, and agile as yeah. well. That, yeah, you do. I think it's you do. Of, that's not lean. That's not agile. Right. Yeah, those arguments. Right. Oh, um, man, I hate that comes up a lot. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And so what I like mm -hmm. about principles is principles are, uh, uh, I think of them like proverbs. They pack a lot of uh, experience and information into sort of a simple phrase. And the phrase has meaning because of all the stories and experiences that are on, that are behind it. Mm. So you can have principles uh that and because they're situational, they're about how to act in a certain situations. You can have two principles that are exactly opposite to each other and still tr have truth and power to them. Mm. You know, for example, there are principles about take your time and be careful and exercise caution. Look before you leap. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are principles about uh, he who hesitates is lost. Right? <laughs> Seize the day. Right. Now yeah. it, 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 they they all have meaning. And they have, and they're memorable, mm. and they can be useful. Uh, but I think the um, uh, the idea of principles to me is they're they're guidelines. They're like patterns. 
mm-hmm. or sort of a pattern language, as opposed to uh, dogma. And mm-hmm. I, I'm trying yeah. to keep away from dogma because I think the uh, one of the most important things about agility, and the more I talk to people, the more I believe this, is being able to be flexible even in your mind. I talked to a guy who was in Iraq uh, before, during, and after the surge. So he saw the the us doing it the wrong way okay. and us figuring it out, and he was and he was and and, and us de- figuring out how to do it actually better. Mm. And um, uh, one of the things that he said he felt very strongly about is. You have to be able to have many different models and theories about why things are happening and compare them to what you're observing at the same time. And you have mm-hmm. to be able to move and switch between them mm-hmm. because uh, any one model is likely to be wrong. And the more you think you know about a situation, the more likely you are to do extreme harm and be mm-hmm. totally wrong. And he said the experts are the actually the worst uh, the greatest danger in a volatile, mm-hmm. complex, and unknown situation because their expertise was always built during the last war. During the last iteration. Yeah, during the last iteration, during the last phase mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they think they have mm-hmm. the answer, and um, but the world changes, mm-hmm. and so the situations change. And so I think this is one of the things... I think models are very useful and they're very mm. important. We all walk around with mental models about how things work and why they sure. work. Mm. But um, especially when you're entering into sort of unknown or complex mm. situations, you want to put your models in play. Mm. And you want to question, you know, like, for example, now what this, what this person over here is saying doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't connect. It's disconnected. Mm. It's cognitively dissonant mm. to me. So, one way, you know, it, rather than dismissing it, you might say, what would I have to believe for that to be true? Mm. What would I have to think? Mm. How would the world need to, what would my model of the world need to look like for that mm. to be true? And start to, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the, uh, there's a U.S. Uh, military strategist guy in Iraq. He said, I said, when did this epiphany start for you? When did, when, mm-hmm. you know, how did you come to this? He said, it started around a map. Okay. Right. Two people from, uh, in the U.S. military, two people on two very different, uh, from very different um, parts of the organization that don't usually talk to each other. They were friends. Yeah. That's why they were talking. Maybe in a coffee shop. <laughs> around a map. Mm-hmm. And he had the map that he was working from. And he had it on the table, and it was a political map. It had political boundaries, districts, police stations, and so forth. Yeah. And uh, his friend said, his friend was in the special forces. And his friend said, let me, because everything they were doing wasn't working, and they couldn't yeah. figure out why. Yeah. And his friend said, let me draw the tribal boundaries on this map for you. Uh, oh, wow. And they were way different yeah. and overlapping. Let mm. me show you the centers of power mm. uh, where the tribal chieftains mm. are and so forth. And suddenly, because they had now c- overlapped mm. two models mm-hmm. that were very different, mm. suddenly things started to make sense. And um, at the same time, around the same time, the strategy changed there and uh, was went from being kind of fighting everybody mm. to actually focusing on providing basic services to the population, mm. making sure the mail mm. got through, making people got food, 
um, making sure that, uh, you know, helping the police, the local police. And the whole, this is the, the what the surge strategy is. Sometimes they call it COIN, uh, counter or something. Okay. Uh, anyway, it's a sort of counter insurgency operation mm -hmm. or something or other. But the, basically the, uh, the idea was we're going to align ourselves with the people who are just trying to provide basic services, picking up the mm -hmm. trash, et cetera. And um, that's when the, the the tide started to turn there. That's, that's a fantastic, fantastic story. story. It's an example. It, it is. Also, yeah. it shows the, the the value of uncovering information. Mm. Because that that was almost a sim mm. simple situation where suddenly a whole set of information yeah. was uncovered and, Two and models. presented. Yeah. Yeah. And then when that was laid on top of the other one, uh, oh, you see, you get new insights yeah. and being open yeah. to take in new information. Yeah, there's a yeah. saying in the Swedish military. I don't know how common it is across the world, but it, if there's a mismatch between the map and reality, follow the map. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which is a, well, it's sort of a joke. <laughs> it, it's, it's from a, from, from a movie, <laughs> and it really pinpoints the problem: is that when you follow yeah. the authority, you may actually go ha be heading into trouble because yeah. if you follow the map, then you're not sure, you're not open-minded about right. discovering something that's not yeah. on the map. Which is yeah. exactly an example of what you just said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, fascinating. Uh, and I had similar, I've uh, talked to a lot of humanitarian aid workers as well. That's very similar uh, stories, which is, uh, you know, that a lot of the way that um, humanitarian aid is done is very heavy-handed and not actually helpful to uh, the situation. And, it's, you know, people not understanding, people coming in thinking that they know the solution. Exactly. You know, for example... Um, this was a kind of a learning moment for me when, uh, you know, the, have you heard of Tom's Shoes? Nope. Tom's Shoes is a company where if you buy a pair of shoes, they will give a free shoes to someone in the third world oh, at the same time. Okay. So you get, a, you get a pair of shoes and you get to feel good. Mm -hmm. But, and that sounds good. But when you start getting over into that situation, what you realize is that, there's a guy there who's make was making shoes for a living, and mm -hmm. you just basically ruined. Mm. Oh. You basically are starting to destroy the local mm. economy, and you're making mm. the situation less sustainable. Oh. Yeah. You're making people in the first world feel good, mm. even though they're actually causing yeah. harm. Yeah, that's one of my <laughs> favorite stories from Mozambique. Actually, yeah. favorite, but it's an example <laughs> I have. That, uh, when I visited Mozambique, they were telling the farmers were telling me that uh, they couldn't make a living out of their corn. Because the U.S. were send, yeah. sending surplus of corn yeah. there, over yeah. there yeah. as it's, aid, of exactly. course. It's but then you, you're not able to make I'm, a living out of it. I'm it's glad you're recording this. I'm going to need permission to use <laughs> that in my book, <laughs> right. uh, that example. But that is um, one of the problems with, with humanitarian yeah. aid that we read about so much. Yeah. Is that it kind of exactly right. feel good for mm. us who are giving, mm. but causes so many problems. Mm. And then you also get the distribution mm. problems. That you know, On top of that, the, f the, you, the food maybe doesn't get to the mm. right people mm. because the, the organization isn't there to actually... Make sure Absolutely. it goes from the people giving over here mm. to the people who need it over there, or it's the wrong people over there get it. Mm. Yeah, and there's a, there's so stories of things done wrong, and mm. also stories of learning and learning yeah. to do it right. And what's what's interesting is that um, a lot of the principles that I'm finding are are very common. Mm. And one of the first ones is that you have to, uh, if you want to understand a situation, you have to immerse yourself in that situation. Mm -hmm. And for example, uh, in the humanitarian aid world, there are rules. You know, in a refugee camp, for example, you can't get out of the white air-conditioned SUV to talk to people. Okay. You can't just walk through the camp because it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. There's Al-Qaeda people. You could be kidnapped. Mm -hmm. 
But at the same time, that means you can't immerse yourself in the situation. It means you can't really understand mm-hmm. the situation, which means that your efforts to help are more often likely to be more harmful than helpful. Mm-hmm. So um, the guy that I spoke to uh, broke the rules and uh, you know, started to talk to people and walk around and, uh-huh. and try to understand the situation. Mm-hmm. And he's now an independent guy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, his name was Mitchell Sipas. And he's uh, been working uh, in very volatile areas around the world. Uh, he did some work for the mayor of Mogadishu in Somalia okay. to help them figure out how to start taking a city that was really com- uh, com- pretty broken and run mm-hmm. by warlords and could have fiefdoms mm-hmm. and so forth and try and actually make improvements. Mm-hmm. And this very interesting parallels between you know, the, the work that he does in Agile software design. And the, one of the things, the principles that I he, keep hearing over and over is uh, just don't, you know, don't freak about your goals. Just make it a little more better. Nice. Just yeah. focus on, and that's just the mm-hmm. phrase from the Army, I, I guess, a little more better, just a little more better. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, uh, if you focus on the, the small uh, incremental wins, you can actually start to, over time, make mm-hmm. huge amounts of progress. And a huge benefit of that, I think, also is that people will see the changes. They see that you make yes. something better. If you make a big change all at the one time, then people will just see one big change and they'll get upset because they can't use anything. Right. Because they're, so it's, it's, they're, like, he's, they're not familiar with it. Yeah, from a psychological point of view, of course, mm-hmm. you're delivering little kick, little um, wins all the time. That's yeah. right. And so you're making people feel good over a longer period right. rather than the kind of big mm-hmm. hit. Or, or mm. if you bigger chance of missing mm. the kind of big goal because it's just so overwhelming because it's it's big and you yeah. get a chance to research people's reactions yeah. to that change yeah. that you made and you know it was that change and not one of the other thousand changes that you made yeah absolutely and Roy Adams is the guy that I talked to who was in the military and uh, in Iraq and he he said well we just wanted to we we were focusing on delivering basic services and we wanted people to know that we were there to stay to make sure that you know. We were they they were going to get wa- you know clean water and so forth, mm. and he said, um, you know, and and we had to do that for a while before that changed any perceptions. But then we we get to a point where people who had been shooting at us before <laughs> would come to us and say, "We're fighting Al Qaeda over here, and we're run out of bullets. Can you come and help us, <laughs> <laughs> or can we have some bullets?" Yeah. And the the uh, so the shift. You know, uh, you think about the shift as being kind of a subtle one. And as, a, as you can imagine, the world being relatively complex over there and hard mm-hmm. to understand. Um, but, you know, focusing on making things a little more better uh, over uh, the short term, things makes things a little more better. But over the long term, it actually um, can uh, cause major shifts to happen. Right. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. How does this apply to UX? <laughs> oh well, I I can tell you. I can yeah. talk. Well, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, well, I mean, this is uh, this is a, in the develop in the world yeah. of developing uh, software and web applications yeah. and uh, interfaces and so forth. Um, you know, there are countless opportunities to make things a little more better. Mm-hmm. Um, there are countless opportunities to listen to customers. Um, to and when you know wh- whenever you get a support question or a complaint, there are many choices about how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the more that you can engage in the dialogue with people, well, why do you you know well, we're working on this board thing app? You know, people want uh, 
the ability to add, make color on the cards. Uh, and this is uh, just so yeah. Anyone, tell us a bit about yeah. Board. I mean, it's basically it's a it's a it's a whiteboard with sticky notes for the web. Mm. And um, what's but what's uh, and we're working on it to be a platform for game storming online. Um, but what, what's so people say we want to make we want to have different colored of sticky notes. We want to have different color cards, and but we want to know why. Yeah. Because what you might be doing on a wall with sticky notes and colored cards, you you might actually be doing a lot of things that we could do differently online and maybe better. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, what if like you know? Well, what if you could hashtag a card? Mm-hmm. And that hashtag would create a set for you or a group that so you could have more than one group at a time. You know, what if they were like tweets? You know, um, what if you could mention someone on a card? Would that be interesting? Why are you tr- why are you trying to use colors? Why do you want colors? Right. And so those conversations can lead to really interesting places. People, if you just say, oh, they want color, let's give them color. Mm. I think you're missing the opportunity to immerse yourself in the situation. Right. You're, you're not focusing on the actual user needs. Mm. So what, exactly. what are they trying to achieve right. through color? People, ask for, people will ask for uh, features, mm. and you have to understand the benefit that they're really trying to, to get out of it. Because sometimes you, can, sometimes you can have something that's even more exciting to them or even mm. more cool. Yeah. I mean, user themselves, I mean, of course, they, they've already done the immersion. Because they've used the product. The users are immersed. Yeah, they've, yeah. they've thrown themselves into the product. They've used it, tried to achieve something. Mm. They've failed maybe to achieve what they want. So they've they've used their mental models and so on to come to a solution. Yeah. Right. Then they present it to you as, here's a feature request. Mm. Right. Mm. And that's where, you know, or people, you know, pay, you can pay a lot of attention to people who are confused because, you know, that's one of the principles that I came up with uh, or that I've sort of has come up is that the people who understand the least often can teach you the most mm, mm. because understanding what why they don't understand something is pretty powerful it can yeah. be pretty powerful mm. oh i didn't realize mm. that that was a, mm. something that you mm. was hard to understand mm. i remember being at a microsoft uh visio conference and one of the guys for the developers was up on a podium talking and he said most of the requests we get for features mm. are already in the product. <laughs> mm. Yeah, right. Well, I, that's a problem, obviously. Mm. Um, and we've actually deliberately hid features yeah. uh, on purpose mm-hmm. because uh, our current goal is to make it as easy as possible for a new user to do stuff. Exactly. And the yeah, fewer cool. options that you have when you're a new user, uh, the ba- the easier it is to get up and start doing things. Yeah. And so uh, this is, but this, these are, I mean, design is all about managing trade-offs within constraining Mm -hmm. environments, right? So these are all ideas and principles that are in play and we're constantly testing them. And that's where I think the the biggest lesson of this uh, research I've been doing so far is that the more you can maintain contact with the situation, with the market, with the users, uh, the enemy, whatever it is, the more you can actually maintain um, uh, c- uh, contact, the more you, the more you can have interactions, the more traction you mm. can get, and the more you can learn, and mm. and uh, the better you want, the better you understand the situation, the better you can yeah. make choices about mm. how you act to improve it. Mm. And sometimes it can be tough to get into situations where you have to confront somebody, and you know that maybe they're upset about the interface, and you don't really want to have that discussion. And I'm, 
what I've been realizing over the actually the past few weeks, where we're, we're doing a pilot for the project I'm in right now, and there are people. It's really early on, and people are expecting us to be more finished than we actually are. Yeah. Uh, but it's so valuable to actually be in that situation as well is what I'm realizing because people are really expressing their frustrations, and I'm understanding exactly and pinpointing what those frustrations are. And so I'm understanding what to focus on for the next sprint or whatever next yeah. development phase we're going so into. So you're capturing that mm. before you've gone too far yeah. in producing something. Exactly. So you can use it as input for the next. The challenge project. is having them understand that. But yeah. it really doesn't matter because as long as we're doing the right thing and well, it, let, having them have their say, then that it's – and they, they realize that we are doing small incremental changes as again. Then they'll see that, oh, they listened to what I said and they actually implemented it. The other thing I, I think is important to remember is people don't get frustrated about things they don't care about. So <laughs> yeah, the fact exactly. that you've got people frustrated yeah. is can be even a good sign yeah. that they actually mm. want to use it. They mm. care about mm. it. They are frustrated because mm. they do want it. Mm. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> they point. wanted to do something. Mm. Uh, if they didn't care, mm. they wouldn't have any emotion yeah. around it. They'd close the lid and <laughs> go somewhere else. Uh, although you have the, the the fact that some of them need to use it, so there's another type of frustration. Of True. Course. Um, yeah, they're paid. And that's their a, job. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Like it's time reporting systems. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to <say> the least. <laughs> But that's another thing I thought about when you were talking before is uh, the tool set and the way I actually use the game storming book is that I'm open to whatever. I know like 10, or 10 out of templates and I'm open to using any which one of them in the workshop because mm -hmm. I can uh, quickly switch between them. But also actually when you're getting more focused and hands-on, if you're talking about interaction design, what I'm really frustrated about there is that a lot of people use tools nowadays. So this is a drop-down box, and this is an input field. You mean and they always look the same. You mean by tools, you mean stuff like um, Basomic or exactly. you know, wireframing so tools? Okay. Exactly. Tools that have ready-made objects yeah. for you that you actually put into the interface. Yeah. So instead of really getting to the bottom of what problem you're solving, you're actually in putting in place mm. things that are known already that to work on the web, but you're not really mm. solving a problem. You're just mm. using stuff that people have used before, which is kind of frustrating as well. Well, at the same time... <laughs> it's kind of natural in some ways because you've, you've got to take a step forward mm. and, and those kind of common um, features or common, sorry, mm. common solutions are the building blocks we use out there and it enables the dialogue or the, or the mm. progress to go forward um, instead of getting stuck on something or, or spending mm. a lot, a lot of time reinventing something that already exists and maybe it does work. Mm. I mean, I understand, yeah, I yeah, understand sure. your complaint and point but at the same yeah. time I understand it's mm. yeah, the communication tool. Mm. Like this uh, board thing, does it have a save button? <laughs> that's right. It doesn't have oh, a save button, right. does it? It doesn't, no. no. It doesn't. Uh, and that's yeah. something that I realized a lot. In, in, and people in, do ask about saving it, yeah, of course. Exactly. And we could put a save button in there. It's mm. saved all the time. So exactly, yeah. and that's it's what I've done in another <laughs> interface. I put a save button there because people are yeah. feeling really well, not, not confident about yeah. there not being a save yeah. button. Yeah. So even though yeah. even a useless button yeah. that does exactly. nothing. Yeah, yeah. Saved. It's safe. <laughs> I've done exactly. I've done a similar thing in product I'm yeah, working on. Yeah. It's, we've we've put in a button that kind <laughs> of funny. ends something, yeah. um, but it does it does exactly the same as another button, um, but it has a different text on yeah. it. So effectively, it communicates it communicates a different need, mm. um, but it does the same thing. Yeah. And it's utterly useless, really. But oh. mm. save. Mm. Here's a hug for you. Yeah. It's always safe. It's right. okay. I've yeah. got you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's really yeah. a common yeah. need, feeling safe about what you're doing and feeling that you get yeah. the right feedback from the buttons and, yeah. and the error messages. Well, um, uh, now I've, I've just 
drift off into something else then completely about <laughs> I was thinking about wireframing again and, and, um, and the, <laughs> the products and so on um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm thinking more about Agile again and the, and the teams mm-hmm. um, and, and how you going back to the very beginning of the show when we're talking about um, from, from an individual point of view how do you how do you survive in these Agile worlds and Agile teams from an individual because I mean, it's one thing when your organisation has taken the step to, to, to dare to be more Agile in its, in its, its way of, of innovating and going forward, but you're still just, you know, Tom Jones was in the middle there or whatever, you're this little kind of guy in the middle of this big cog, and you've got to deal with all this that's going on and, and so on. So how do, how do you survive as, a, as an agile individual? Well, that's another thing I like about principles is they can, they're like a fractal. They can apply as an individual, they can apply to a team, they can apply to a company, mm-hmm. and they uh, sometimes apply in different ways. Uh, but I think it's the same, the same principle for an individual. You know, uh, immerse yourself in the situation, uh, question your expertise, uh, try and get as many diverse perspectives as possible, try and actually truly understand different points of view to where you actually can give them, even if you disagree, you give them enough space to consider them, mm-hmm. even if you think they're wrong, try and understand what you would have to understand differently in order for that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um and then start making uh, small moves. Um, you know, one of the you talk about individuals. Some individuals are leaders, and that's an interesting area too. I've um, the, uh, the General Petraeus, who was uh, David Petraeus, who was the kind of the um, one of the primary architects of the strat- this surge strategy in Iraq, was uh, uh, famous for um, dropping in unexpected. And uh, yeah. this guy Roy Adams interacted with him, and he told. I said, "What is? What was it about him?" And he said, "Well, first of all, he disrespected the chain of command. I mean, he he would yeah. get his information filtered up through the bureaucracy, but he didn't trust it. So he would be always out there talking to people. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something about the way he asked his questions. Um, you didn't know what answer he wanted to you to give." So you had to just tell him the truth. <laughs> he was asking questions in such a way that, uh, you know, some people will ask questions and it's like obvious what they want to hear. Yeah. Well, probably a lot yeah. of leaders will oh, do yeah. that. How are you holding up, son? How's your, <laughs> you know, uh, Preferably sucks, with a group of people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing. But he, the way he would ask questions was very much you uh, trying to really understand the situation, trying to find... Um, uh, get the truth, get to the truth. And uh, so that disrespect for the chain of command is actually very important for him mm. to make good decisions because he was trying to understand the situation from multiple points of view. Mm. And I think this is a really important lesson for leaders of agile and connected teams you is, uh, you know, most organizations, you know, the, the senior people are isolated. They're in the corner office or they're at the top of the building mm. They're the farthest that they could possibly be from customers, mm. usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, they're uh, very isolated from the frontline situation, and their information that they get is filtered through layers of people who want them to be happy. Mm. And they, I just learned, a, I don't know if this is a Swedish saying, the monkey tree. Have you heard of the monkey tree? Nope. Okay. Uh, I'm going to use some, a bad word here. But the monkey tree is like a, a pyramid of, <laughs> like there's monkeys all over the tree. There's one monkey at the top. Okay. And if you're at the top and you look down, all you see is smiling monkey faces. But if you're at the bottom and you look up, all you see is assholes. Right? 
love it. <laughs> anyway, that's the monkey tree, yeah. right? And the, the lower you are, the more assholes you see. And but the so the thing about um, the higher you are in the monkey tree, the more likely your information is going to be massaged toward what you want to hear, mm. because the monkeys below you want to be seen as smiling, good monkeys. Yeah. yeah. And so um, you know what the connected monkey will do is. Go down to the bottom of the tree, walk around, and talk to all the monkeys. <laughs> um, I'm getting lost in the metaphor. <laughs> monkeys. But, uh, you know, basically the, uh, the, a connected leader has to spend a lot of time triangulating. Yeah. They're getting different points of view, uh, going out into the world, talking to customers, talking to partners, uh, suppliers, doing a lot of sense-making because in a connected world where there's a lot of complexity and volatility and ambiguity and a lot of unknowns. Um, you don't want to be getting all your information from the people who fought the last war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you have to do a lot of monkeying around. Yeah. yeah. Monkey around. Yeah, so it's a really important lesson. <laughs> Sense making, wife finding. And, yeah. yeah. Get yeah. to the bottom of it. Don't trust the map. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. the higher you are, the more important it is to go down. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, we Here in Sweden, we... we, we generally say that we've got very flat organizations mm. um, compared to the UK and yeah, America. I, I think that's pretty yeah. much true yeah. with my experience. Um, so, so that theoretically then says that Sweden is, is already, from an organizational culture point of view, more ready for that jump into agile ways of working, like you could say. Um, let me think about that. I mean, <laughs> there's a difference between flat and connected. Yeah. Ooh, oh, yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's, good, that's good point. Yeah. So you have, um, let's take a company like uh, HP. Yeah. Very flat. Mm. Uh, pretty much, uh, probably in some ways, very collaborative. Mm. Um, definitely kind of sort of engineering oriented culture. Mm. But engineers can also uh, have a preference to not be connected to customers in reality. Yeah. They, can be, they can get into analysis paralysis. Mm. They can be very flat and collaborative and be totally out of touch. Yeah. And I'm not going to – well, I will say that. HP, I think, is totally out of touch. <laughs> they're, um, they're, uh, that company is very flat, very collaborative, mm. but very internally oriented. Mm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, there's a difference between a flat culture and a culture that's connected to its environment. Yeah. They, you can have, I mean, mm -hmm. a, company, a, a company that's connected to its environment mm -hmm. can be very flat. It could also be hierarchical. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, that one, the one doesn't yeah. necessarily have to lead to the other. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Apple's a pretty hierarchical organization, mm -hmm. pretty siloed, pretty yeah. uh, divided company. Mm -hmm. But it is very, uh, it's got its ear to the ground and is yeah. very, very, um, they may not talk a lot about what they're doing, but they listen a lot. Mm. There's a lot of listening going on. Mm. And presumably the listening also implies a lot of trust. Because mm -hmm. if you're listening and hearing stuff out there, mm -hmm. then you're going to have to trust your coworkers that you know, once you enable them, once you're going to give them like a, a green flag to, to go ahead and do something, then you trust that they're going to go ahead and, and do it. Yeah, trust is a major theme that's come around. Uh, and and because because trust is important, um, you know, so what happens in a, in a connected company or an, uh, also in an agile environment is because you have people out there needing to make sense of things all the time, you need to give them autonomy. 
we need to speed it up. Oh, that's okay. Uh, uh, well, they, you need to give them autonomy to make yeah. decisions because they're 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 probably the best at the best point to make the decision is the point where the action is happening. Mm. So they need as much information as possible. So that requires trust to give them the information. Mm. It also requires trust for them to be able to act decisively. Yeah. And know that they're not going to get punished, even yeah. if they make a wrong decision. Exactly. That they they are trusted mm-hmm. to act. And another piece of trust is that people have you know choices about where they work. Um, people would prefer to work for a place that has they have alignment with in terms of what they want to do in the world. They're, they people want purpose and meaning in their work if they mm-hmm. can get it. They want to care about what they're doing, mm-hmm. and so um, that is one of the things that enables more trust to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. If a company has a clear purpose, and I know that I share that purpose, you might not have to watch, have me punch the clock so much, right? Because you know that I care, mm. and I know that I know that you care. Mm. Exactly. Oh, we could we could actually sit here all day. And talk. I think so as well. Yeah. It's so interesting, and so many good stories and ideas, and you have a way of putting things into words that actually. I understand what you're saying <laughs> and you. how to apply it into, into my world as well. Awesome. That's <laughs> wonderful to hear. I'm glad because uh, that's. Uh, I hope that uh, I'm excited about the, this book. It's yeah. not coming out. It's still going to be. The next year it's due. Yeah, it's, it's, it'll be yeah. in uh, 2015, right. spring probably, mm-hmm. about yeah. this time next yeah. year. Uh, but it's, uh, it's super, it really is exciting to, mm. um, I mean, the, the first book, Gamestorming was about stuff that I really had known and done for a long time. The Connected Company book was a research project, but a lot of it was secondary research. A lot of it was reading about mm-hmm. through other people's uh, books and uh, other people's stuff. This is the f- uh, first book where I've really done a lot of primary research, where I'm just yeah. talking to the people who are yeah. doing it. Long conversations, uh, unstructured, but mm-hmm. kind of um, applying some of the things that I learned when I was a journalist, you know, about ask getting people to talk about things and understanding information. Mm. Mm. And it's been, it's really been fascinating. Mm. Really fascinating. Yeah. Definitely looking so forward I, to that. I'm guessing while we wait for that book, uh, we'll recommend your other two books for people to buy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and I reckon though, um, what people could do is they could, um, they could go and visit boardthing.com. Oh yeah. Which yeah. is, they've so mentioned in the middle of the show, the, um, the new, mm. actually if, uh, if you're, if you're, if you've listened this far, then, uh, it's uh, board thing is still in private beta, but if you uh, if you put UX podcast in as the way that you found us, then we will fast track you into the private beta. There we go. You Excellent see. reward for listening <laughs> to the whole thing. Excellent. So. Thanks, Dev. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Thanks so much for being with us. Yes. Good to see you in Stockholm. Excellent. Yeah. It's Thanks for having me. Stockholm is a beautiful, beautiful and that city. We f- found time to meet up as well. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I'm really glad to be here. Right. Um, well. You can, you can, if you want to give us feedback or get in touch with us or anything like that, then you can find us pretty much everywhere as um, UX Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't find us, tell us and we'll make sure we're there. Um, <laughs> you can even find us on UXPodcast.com, right. where um, you'll find um, everything we mentioned in the show, links and things, um, plus an archive of all our previous episodes, including episode 15, which is also with Dave Gray. Fantastic. Um, and if you've enjoyed the show, then that's great. I'm happy. I'll sleep tonight. <laughs> and if not... Then don't tell us. Oh, I don't want nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everybody. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.